0: James shows us a faith. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. How many ladies have guys up on the mountain here this weekend? Men's retreat, about 80 plus guys. Okay, there's a few of you out there. Do you miss them? Yes. It's a good thing you said that. We got 80 guys up there coming down off the mountain after a big uh, retreat summit. So pray for them, for their Safe return. Hey, let me share with you a little bit of a story that happened to me yesterday. Um, Nancy and I went with two couples in our church on a razor ride. From you guys know what razors are, okay? On a razor ride, there was uh, three of us couples, three razors, and so we we went from Lake Pleasant to Castle Hot Springs. You guys know where Castle Hot Springs is, and we went from Castle Hot Springs to Wickenburg with all those clouds, <laughs> and as we were driving into Wickenburg, we got drenched, and we were shivering cold, and we stopped at a Mexican food restaurant, had brunch, and then we began to return the same way, and we had a guy warn us because he said all of those streams because about 15 miles of it is on riverbed. And as we came back through there, we were driving through about two to three feet of water in those razors, very, very treacherous. How many are familiar with the dumb motorist law? (laughs) We should have all been arrested, okay, and thrown in jail. But nobody was out there to arrest us, But so we tried to get back as we were trying to head back. Uh, going through it. Very treacherous. It's, it's difficult enough as it is, but then it filled up very quickly, and uh, one of the guys' razor uh, died. It blew the engine in it because there's just too much water. We got stranded in Castle Hot Springs, and uh, And so I was about two to three hours. They were supposed to have me back at our car by 2 o'clock. It was about 4.30, and I had no service on my phone. Finally, at Castle Hawk Springs, I walked up high enough to where I actually got service, called Darren, said, Darren, I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. That was last night, okay? So I called up Darren and said, you're on, dude. He goes, what? (laughs) He did a phenomenal job, though. He stepped up and uh, covered for me, did a phenomenal job. And, uh, and so, they were supposed to have us back by 2. We got back about 7, 7.15. And uh, it's been a while, it's been a while since I've been in that much danger and shivered the whole day because it was so cold. We were just, just muddy water all over us and then laughed so hard all day. It was just, it was one of those crazy uh, events so it's been a while since I've been in that kind of danger and, and shivered so much and laughed so hard. And you know, some people cry when they are about to die. I laugh, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so those two couples who attend Desert Breeze here will be excommunicated from Desert Breeze. <laughs> They're under police investigation for attempted murder of Nancy and I. And I overheard them talking about collecting and splitting a key man life insurance policy on me. I, I don't know. One of them is an elder here at the church. and So there's something going on. You guys just need to be aware of that. Now, we made it safe and sound. I didn't make it to the service last night. But, man, I'm I'm still wore out. (laughs) I'm never going to do that again. Okay. But uh, thank God for his grace and goodness. If you have your Bibles, turn to James. James chapter 2. And uh, let me begin with this intro here. There are some things that always go together. See if you can complete these sentences. Some things that always go together. Tortilla chips. Yeah, so you can't have tortilla chips without salsa. Peanut butter without jelly. Cake without frosting or icing. Adam without Eve. Texas without big hair. Big hair. Okay, anybody from Texas? Okay, look at, look at their hair, okay. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, thunder without lightning, phoenix without heat, sunshine, and, and let me add another to that list. You can't have faith without works. You can't have faith without works. That's what this book of James is all about. Two key verses, verse 17 and 26 of chapter 2 is really the theme verses of this whole letter faith without works is dead and in fact you can see there on your notes look at your notes James chapter 2 verse 24 this is the key verse of our text he says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone but look at what Paul says in Romans 3:28 Paul says and it's on your notes there for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What, 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 what wait a minute. That's a contradiction. And a lot of people will go to these two passages and say, Yep, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Is that a contradiction? No. You guys think it is? No, nope, 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 nope. In fact, who is right? James or Paul? Both. Both. Should be right there on your notes. Both. Both. And here's what's interesting is that at the end of the first century, as the apostles were dying. As they were dying out, the church began to assemble their writings and put James and Romans together. They didn't see them as contradictory. Because, I mean, when you read through that, one is saying justified by works. The other one's saying justified by faith, apart from works. So it almost sounds like a, a contradiction, but they didn't see it as a contradiction. Also, in Acts 15, it tells us of a historical event that happened the, the very early days of the church, there was a, a great council, the Council of Jerusalem, maybe you've read it before. James and Paul and all the apostles got together and talked about this very issue, and they all came away with consensus. Now, this is why they came away with consensus, and, and the reason why they are both right. Who is right, James or Paul? Both, because they're both defining the word justified differently. It's on your notes there, justified, the Greek word, is there's two ways of defining it. Justified can be make yourself right, make yourself right, or prove yourself right. So two ways of defining the word justified. It's either make yourself right or prove yourself right. So when Paul says we're justified by faith, he means we cannot be made right with God except through the work of Jesus Christ. We can't make ourselves right. That's what he's saying. Can't be justified by, by works. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And when James says that we're justified by works, he means that it's our works that prove we're right with God. He's not talking about being made right. He's talking about now that we've been made right, how do we prove that we have been made right? So, so both of them, they're not fighting each other. They're fighting, they're fighting heresy, heretical teaching, and and so so Paul is fighting legalism, and James is fighting liberalism. So what is is legalism? Legalism is if you obey God, obey God, then you are right with God. Obey and you'll be right with God. That's legalism, that's moralism. Uh, Liberalism is, hey, you're right with God by grace through faith in Christ, but it, it doesn't really matter how you live after that. That's called liberalism. So I'm accepted in Christ, and then I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. It doesn't really matter. My obedience doesn't matter. That's called liberalism. And so that's what James is fighting. So Paul is fighting legalism. James is fighting liberalism. Paul is focused on the root of our faith. James is focused on the fruit of our faith. Paul is revealing how to become a Christian. James is revealing how to behave like a Christian. In fact, that's what the book of James is all about. As you walk with Christ, if you have had an encounter with the resurrected Christ as he had, then this is what your life will look like. It will transform your life. It will totally change your life. So this is also in your notes. So we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. That's a good statement. That's an important statement. So James is not showing us how to get saved, but how to know that you are saved. So it's it's really important. So he's not showing us how to get saved, but now that you are saved, this is what it looks like. And listen to me. Everybody look up here. You need to know this. You need to know whether or not you're actually saved. He's gonna give it to us. He's gonna help us to understand that because there's a lot of people out there that believe that they're saved, but they're not. Right here in our American culture. And there are those that are saved and really struggle with whether or not they are. And our adversary will come after each person. And, uh, and so James is going to show us, we're going to look at it in our notes, James is going to show us insufficient signs of saving faith and then unmistakable signs of, of saving faith or real faith. So really important for us to understand this this morning. Now, that was just my intro, okay? And uh, so now we're going to pray and then because we need help to understand this and then we're going to read the text we'll unpack the notes. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So God... We are delighted to be here this morning. We love you, and we know that intimacy with you by grace through faith in your Son is life's most satisfying reality. It tells us in Hebrews eleven six 6, that without faith it is impossible to please you, for whoever would draw near to you must believe that you exist and that you reward those who seek you. And so we pray that through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that, that sleepy Christians would wake up this morning and nominal Christians, those in name only, would be converted. And that DB, Desert Breeze Church family, would become beautiful with a rich and robust faith that seeks you with all of our hearts so that many hard-to-reach people would be drawn to you through our lives. And we pray these things in our Savior's beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. So. I'm going to read the text, and this is what I want you to look for. Look for key words, like hint, hint, one of the key words is works. And in fact, uh, James' main point is that real saving faith will have works, 12 times in 13 verses. Okay, so here we go. Starting in verse 14, chapter 2 of James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, filled," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about this. You heard that word over and over again, works, 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 12 times, 13 verses. Now, let's look at insufficient signs for real faith. Here's the first one. It's more than what you say. It's more than, your profess, more than your profession. You can say that you're a Christian and not be a Christian. He makes that very clear in verses 14 through 17. Remember, he says, what good is it, brothers, if someone says, there it is, profession of faith, says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he goes on to use the illustration when someone's in need, poorly clothed, lacking daily food, and one says to him, just kind of gives them words, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's just saying, you can't just profess it. It's got to be more than your profession. It's got to be seen in your actions is what he's saying here. That's the first. And so here's the next one. So insufficient signs of real faith. It's more than what you say. It's more than what you do. It's more than what you do. Good works, because he says in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. And he's kind of arguing here, and he's just saying, hey, you know what? You can't really show, you you can't see someone's faith except through their works is what he's saying. Show me your faith apart from your works? Well, you can't. I will show you my faith by my works. And what he's saying here is that saving faith and good works are inseparable. So let me ask you this question: You can answer out loud. Is it possible to have good works apart from saving faith? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Jesus made that very clear in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says, beware of practicing your righteousness, so good works, before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites. So he even describes them as hypocrites. As the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by, their, by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't make a big deal about that. He says, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, yeah, yeah you can do good deeds for all the wrong reasons. You can become a very good person for all the wrong reasons. It's important to keep in mind so you can do good works and still not be saved. Here's another question for you. Is it possible to make yourself right with God by good works? No. Yeah, we've already, we've kind of already alluded to that. We've already talked about that. Yeah. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not by works. You can't. You can't do enough good works to earn a right standing with God. That's, the Bible's very clear about that. And yet you ask a lot of Americans, they believe that you can. They base their, their salvation or their going to heaven because if you were to ask, hey, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah, of course. So what makes you think you're going to go to heaven? Because I'm basically a good person. Yeah, Exactly. That's our, our, our American, American way. I'm a good person. As if it's based on being a good person. But the Bible says very clearly, you can't earn. You can't earn your salvation. So you can have good works and still not be saved. Here's the next one. It's more than what you believe. It's more than your doctrine. So it's, so it's more than what you say, your profession. It's more than what you do. It's your good works. It's more than what you believe, your doctrine. Look at verse 19. Did you see what he said? You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe. Listen to me. The demons are better theologians than all of us put together. And the Bible says they're not saved. You can have all your doctrine ducks in a row and still not be saved. It's more than that. And then here's the next one. It's more than what you feel. It's more than an emotional experience. Look at the second part, the last part of verse 19. So it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they do what? They shudder. They shudder. The demons have a better response to God than many Christians. In fact, the word shudder here, the Greek word means hair stands on end. Isn't that interesting? Hair stands on end. It's the kind of word you would uh, use in reading a Stephen King novel. It's like, ah. Oh. I took my wife a number of years ago to, to a scary movie. I didn't, th- I didn't know that it was a scary movie. I wouldn't have taken her to a scary movie. She doesn't like going to scary movies. But I took her to this movie. It was a Harrison Ford movie. We were thinking it's kind of going to be more of like an Indiana Jones, but it wasn't. It was, uh, the name of the movie was What Lies Beneath. Uh, you guys know what that movie is? You guys familiar with that movie? What Lies Beneath? And he kills his wife in this movie. Indiana Jones kills his wife. <laughs> that messes up your idea of uh, Harrison Ford. And so he kills his wife. And it's, it's this really weird movie. But we're sitting out there. And, uh, and I wasn't so much freaked out by the movie. But my wife, there was one of those scenes, you know, where it gets real quiet. And all of a sudden, rah, something jumps out at you. And she goes, she does one of these. And I was she looks over at me and screams right in my ear. And I wasn't worked up about that. I mean, she had, you know, her hairs were on end. You could tell as she's screaming. And the movie scene didn't bother me. It was her screaming that bothered me, and I screamed. We were like a couple junior high girls watching a scary movie, screaming together. or we like junior high girls on a roller coaster. We were going, ah, ah, ah. And she... uh. And I was like, man, I was doing okay until you screamed. Now I'm all shaken up. Oh, boy, I blamed it on her. I should have never taken her to that movie in the first place. I think that's what she was trying to get at. But this is that idea, hair stands on end. Here's what's so cool about this. It sounds cool, but, I mean, I say it. I mean, I like this only because they shudder, demons shudder. Here's what's so so cool about this, as you study through the gospel accounts, that when Jesus walks in and there's demonic activity, Jesus doesn't shudder. Demons shudder when Jesus walks in. And that's the team I want to be on. I'm on the Jesus team because I want to walk around knowing that He's for me and not against me, and demons shudder. Demons have a, a good solid theology, and they're responding appropriately to Jesus, the God of the galaxies. They know they're doomed when he shows up, and that's part of that. I just absolutely love that. So here's the deal, here's what we need to understand. A person with saving faith will have these characteristics. They're gonna profess Christ, they're gonna do good works, they're gonna have good doctrine, they're gonna have an experience on their heart of that doctrine, but you can have any or all these characteristics without saving faith. You can have all of these and not be a Christian. Okay, Pastor Ray, so what more do we need to have? I'm glad you asked. And okay, we're going to talk about that. In fact, I've got this on your notes, Matthew 7. I think this really goes really perfect. Good cross-reference text. This is what Jesus said. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he said. He said, and this, this verse, these verses have always... Kind of frightened me, it's kind of shaken me a bit because I look at these and I go, oh Lord, I want to make sure that I know you, I really know you. I'm just kind of going through the the motions here that I really have a saving faith, I have a real faith. And this is what he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so there's the profession, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he's telling us right there, who does the will of my Father in heaven. Look at verse 22, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, by the way, anytime you emphasize there's a repeated uh, person's name, it's it's in passion, feeling, there's the emotion, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this for you? Did we not prophesy in your name? There's doctrine, so did we not prophesy in your name? Doctrine, and cast out demons in your name, there's change agents, yeah, there's going to be people that have even helped others come to Christ. They were change agents. And do many mighty works in your name. There's the good works. And notice this. Look at verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did, did you see all of that in there? He's, he's dealing with profession, passion, doctrine even a change agent help people pointing people to Christ and good works and still and still when you when you stand before him and by the way all of us everybody here will one day take your last breath on earth and your first breath standing before the creator of the universe and for him to for him the only eyes in the universe that matter for him to look at you and to say I don't know you Is hell. I don't know this one. Yeah, but Lord, we did this and we did that. I don't know that one. But for the only eyes in the universe that matter to look you in the eyes and say, I know that one. That's mine. He's my son. She's my daughter. I I love them. Come on, let's celebrate. That's heaven, that's heaven. All of us, right here, everybody out there will hear one of those two statements because all of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. That's heavy. That's heavy. So it's not based on what what you do, what what you profess, what you do. Good doctrine, emotional experience. I had an emotional experience one time. No, no, no. It's much more, much more than that. Here, what is it? What's well, on your notes right here. The differences between using God, that's verse 22, versus serving God. The differences between using God and serving God. Let me show you verse 22 in Matthew 7. Look at verse 22. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, 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 Lord. They're, they're serving themselves. It's, a, it's about them. It's all about them. You can see that in the language. But notice this, versus serving God. Look at that's verse 21. He says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one, so not everyone who says Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, So a user looks to God as a means, but a server looks to God as the glorious end. So we've got to talk about that just for a moment. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the folks sitting around you because you need to know this. What's the difference? What is a person that uses God? What does that look like? What does it mean to use God? Because listen to me, there's doctrine on Christian TV that teaches you how to use God. It's called the health and wealth gospel. There's churches here in the valley that teach Hey, here's how you can use God. They teach a form of moralism. This is how you can use God. It's, not, it's less about serving God and more about using God. You need to know the difference. So what's the difference? What does it mean to use God? What would that look like in a person's life? What would it look like in your life if you were using God rather than really serving God? Maybe that's kind of a hard question, but you need to know the, the answer to that question. Real quick, do that. Discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you about 30 seconds. Okay, you guys coming up with some good answers for that? What do you think? Here's, here's my list. See if your list goes along with my list. Here's the first one. You only stick with Christianity as long as things are going your way. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I put money in the box. I even went to a small group, and this is what I get? It's like, ay, ay, ay that's called religion, it's called moralism. I mean, there's a mindset, and it's taught in a lot of American churches. It's almost a form of paganism. You, know, you guys know what paganism is. Appease the gods, and he will take the heat off, and he will give you prosperity, and, and you will prosper in every way. It's a, it's a way of appeasing God in some way. If I, and I've seen people do this, they, and, and, and it's always good to come back to church when things are not going well in your life, but don't come with the mindset of somehow you're going to use God so that maybe he'll make things go better for you as a result of that. I hope that you encounter God because then you, you've missed the whole point of what Christianity is about. That's called moralism. I obey God, then he blesses me. That's moralism. Or it's not liberalism where he blesses me therefore I don't have to obey him. No, gospel basically is saying this. Are you kidding me? By grace through faith in Christ, he has blessed you beyond your wildest dreams and therefore you're going to want to obey him and serve him and honor him. Of course you are. But there's a, there's a form of moralism being taught in a many American churches these days. And it's a form of paganism. You work the combination, do all the right things, and then, therefore, God owes you. And it's wrong. It, it's, it's really bad theology. So, and what happens is that a lot of people bail out when they don't get what they think they should get. So you only stick with Christianity as long as things are going well. You, spiritual disciplines, here's the second one. Spiritual disciplines or your prayer life only heats up when you are in hard times. Because what you love most is taking a hit, and now you're going to come back to God to try to get him to take the heat off so that you can get more of whatever it is that's most important to you more so than him. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? That's really important because, listen, if you understood what the Bible teaches is that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality, you don't wait until hard times. You're spending time with him daily, each and every day, because you find so much delight in him beyond anything that this world could ever give you, and you realize that, so you're living in the reality of him. So you're not just running back to him when bad times hit your life. You're running to him daily. And so if you find yourself only getting on your knees and really seeking God when bad times are happening, it's, which is a good time. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but hopefully you discover him in the middle of all of that and that he's better. He's better than anything that you'll ever experience in this life. Here's another one, number three. My morality and virtue are motivated by fear and or pride rather than love for God. I don't know how many times I've heard messages where, where guys, pastors, were motivating people out of fear and pride to be good or to give money. Fear, God's going to get you. You're not going to get the blessing. If you don't do this, or pride, you don't want to be like all those losers over there. You want to be a part of the winning team. We're the winning team. That's pride. That's pride as opposed to a love for God, a heart that's been captivated by who Jesus is and what he's done for you, oh my goodness, of course you're gonna give. That's gonna be an overflow of your life out of the abundance of what you've received from him. Here's here's another one. You have an attitude of entitlement. God owes me versus overwhelming attitude of gratitude. I forever owe God. I mean, you just, when you realize, listen, listen to me. If God never did another thing, if you're a believer in Christ, if he never did another thing for you, you would still be overwhelmed by the wonder of the fact that you're a child of God, you're a friend of Christ, you're a member of the family of God, and all the wealth that you have in him, that would be enough for you to face anything. But if you have this kind of attitude of indebtedness, it's like, well, he owes me, and I've done this, that's moralism, that's called religion. That's unhealthy. Oh my goodness, you're missing the best part of the Christian life, that's intimacy with God and what he offers us by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Friendship with God is not relegated to just a few special people. That's for all of us who put our faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, uh, you can write these verses down on your notes. It's Psalm 25, 14. It says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. The word friendship literally means secrets. There's there's an intimacy. Oh, my goodness, that's so uh, soul-satisfying and life-liberating that's found in Jesus Christ that's out of this world. And that's what he's talking about there. He makes known his covenant. Write down this verse also, John 15, 15. John 15, 15. So Psalm 25, 14, John 15, 15. John 15, 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I will make known to you. Here's the bottom line. Real faith longs for friendship with God. God isn't a means to an end, but the end you love God not for what you get or avoid, but for God in and of himself. Jesus is the ultimate friend who will always let you in and never let you down. And if you have him as a friend, oh my goodness, you can face anything. You can face Anything now here 's unmistakable signs i 've kind of kind of laid the groundwork for that unmistakable signs of real faith here 's the first thing: admit that you are a sinner made right with God by grace through faith in christ 's work, not yours. admit that you are a sinner made, you are a sinner made right with God by grace through faith in christ 's work not your not yours. Now, keep your Bible open. you need to go back to James chapter two, still in James chapter two, but back to verse five. Darren talked about this last weekend. And look at verse 5. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? So not just poor economically, but he's also talking, oftentimes that word is used in, in the scriptures for poor spiritually. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, so spiritual poverty, so those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith in heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So what is he saying in in that verse? He's saying that we are radically fallen and yet infinitely exalted in Christ. And he he uses this idea of heirs of the kingdom. What's the difference between wages and an inheritance? What's the difference between the two? Because that's what he's, he's... Okay, one you work for. So wages are something you achieve, you earn as an employee based on your performance little by little. Inheritance is something you receive as an heir based on promise guaranteed all at once. So the moment you give your life to Jesus, you confess faith in Christ, boom, instantaneous, status change. You go from being hell-bound to heaven-bound. You go from being an enemy of God, a child of God, immediate status change amazing you become an heir you don't work for it you receive it you enter into it because christ did all the work for us and what you realize and there'll be those moments in your life where you begin to realize where the where the grace of god gets a hold of your heart and you go oh my goodness this is out of this world you realize that you are wealthy beyond the world's richest billionaire I mean, that's the thinking that goes into this. You're going, you've got to be kidding me. I'm a friend of God? Just if you walked out those implications and begin to understand the resources that we have. So so he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Oh, my goodness, That's, that's unbelievable. And so... So a rich person, a, a, a person rich in faith, and this is what God has been kind of working on, on my heart a lot, a person rich in faith knows that any time that they are struggling with envy, I struggle with envy, anxiety, that's me, bitterness, yep, I can struggle with that too, hopelessness, certainly. Anytime they are struggling with envy, anxiety, bitterness, hopelessness, it's because at that moment they are not living in the reality of all that they have as an heir of the kingdom of God. We have this gospel amnesia taking place. We're forgetting what we have and who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, you don't make yourself right by your works. You prove yourself right by your works. And so look at verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified? In other words, not, not made right, but proved right by works. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. So all of that was a fulfillment of what happened preceding that. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he's called a friend of God. So it begins with, admit that you are a sinner made right with God by grace through faith in Christ's work, not yours. Here's the second one. It's believe that you can never be so good that you don't need God's grace or so bad that you can't receive God's grace. And this is what James is doing. He's running the full spectrum of people having saving faith. By the way, we have an adversary who wants people who are unsaved to think that they are saved and people who are saved to think that they aren't. How does he do that? He comes after our works. And so he would say to the person who is unsaved, so to the unsaved person, he would say, of course you are a believer. Look how good you are, especially compared to others. He would say to those that are saved to get you to doubt your your saving faith, he would say, of course you're not a believer. A believer wouldn't act like that or talk like that or behave like that. He uses guilt and shame that Christ died for. In the last seven verses, James gives us two illustrations to show us the full gamut of this idea of grace and faith. Two illustrations of two very different people, exact opposites that that real faith, really showing us that real faith is not passive but active in verses 20 through 26. Let me kind of walk you through this, see if you can see these two in your mind's eye, this kind of chart. So Abraham, you can read about him in Genesis 22, and then Rahab, you can read about her in Joshua too. But Abraham is a man, Rahab is a woman, Abraham is Jewish, Rahab is Gentile, Abraham is a patriarch, Rahab is a prostitute, Abraham is, is a somebody. Rahab is a nobody. And Abraham is a major character in the Bible. Rahab is a minor character in the Bible. What's, what's the point of that? Why would he do that? It's, he's just showing the, the full spectrum of, of faith. And, uh, and I think that before we start putting Abraham kind of in a category different from her, let me just say something about it. after Abraham's conversion experience in Genesis 15... When he had that righteousness imputed upon him, sometimes we kind of put him, he's the father of our faith. Well, you need to know that the father of our faith was really messed up, okay? Did you know that? You guys familiar with the story? So then in chapter 15, in Genesis 15, after that, he does some really horrible things. Now think about this. Here's, here's one of the first horrible things that he does. He, because his wife, Sarah, is barren, at his wife's coaching, not to blame her, he didn't have to do it, but he goes to bed with, his, with her servant to assist God in fulfilling his promise of offspring. So his wife says, I, I'm barren. Just go to bed with my servant. And, and Abraham said, oh, no, I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> no, he was more like, okay, whatever I need to do to help you and God out, The guy was messed up. Why would he do that? Because though he had righteousness imputed to him, he still was a mess. And then later on, what does he do? He pimps out his wife. Well, that sounds crass, Pastor Ray, because it is. He's facing a a king and... He's kind of a little bit nervous. This king's going to take him out. And so what does he do? He, because he's, he's going he's to save his little sorry neck by saying, she's my sister. And the king takes her into his harem. And God protects him. So lest you start thinking that somehow he's after his faith, he had it all together. He didn't whatsoever. And so we see that. We see his, his stumbling. We all stumble in many ways. We're going to talk about that next week in... Uh, in James chapter 3, but you see that with him in, 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 ver- in Genesis 16 and then in Genesis 20, but there's something that happens in Genesis 22. After he offered his son on the altar, he seems to substantially grow in faith and have less of the crazy sinfulness he had in the early days of his faith. Let me, let's talk about Rahab for a minute. Rahab is a prostitute in Jericho. No little girl dreams of being a prostitute when she grows up. You become a prostitute because very evil and wicked things happen to you. You are used and abused as a commodity. And because we all have this homing instinct, every one of us tends to return to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional. That's what she does. And yet and yet, she heard the message of God's people and of this God, of this nation of Israel. And she began to put her faith in him. And these spies show up to her house and she protects them and gives them a way of escape. And God says, she has faith in me. And I have this horrible idea sometimes and I've seen that happen to where these men of God, these spies come into her home and they abuse her like everybody else does. And I've seen that in in churches even here in America. How despicable, how horrible. These guys didn't do that. They didn't do that and yet God says here in verse 25 and in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And here's what's fascinating about these two characters, both Abraham and Rahab. In the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew one, you have both Abraham and Rahab, both in the genealogy of Jesus. And then in the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, you have both Abraham and Rahab. So what's the point here? Well, here's the point. It doesn't matter who you are as long as you have real faith, as long as you have saving faith. Listen, he doesn't want anything from you. He wants you. He wants your heart. Give him your heart. That's what they did. They gave God their heart. They were still a mess, but he was able to continue to work in their lives as a result of that. No fall. Here's another point I think we can draw from that. No fall is ever fatal unless you refuse to get back up through repentance and faith. You get back up, keep going, keep heading back to him. And it's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. And I think... Before I end with this last point here, there is no sin that you have committed and there's no sin that has been committed against you is a match for God's rescuing, redeeming, and restoring grace. I think that's the biggest idea from all of that. No matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, God can redeem you, God can rescue you, God can restore you. Put your faith in him. Here's the last one. Letter C. Celebrate God's outrageous love for you by loving him with your whole person, your mind, emotion, will, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is, this is our response to him when we begin to understand all that he's done for us. So what, is, what does it mean to love God? Well, in both cases, Abraham and Rahab, the visible validation of their saving faith was their willingness to put their life, their hopes, their dreams on the line. In verse 21, Abraham uh, He did that through the offering of his son Isaac on the altar. And then in verse twenty-five, Rahab risked her life when she received the messengers or the spies of God and and sent them out by another way. Here's what that means: is that you are so supremely committed to God that you would sacrifice your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, even risk your own life to be true to God. Now I know there's a lot of messages in in American culture that say, "Hey." Come to God, and he will help you to achieve your your dreams and your hopes and your ambitions. That's not the gospel message, actually. It's not about you. It's about him. And believe me, you will achieve dreams and hopes and ambitions unlike ever before, but not you at the center, but him at the center of your life, and not him serving you as much as you serving him because that's how he created us. You are so supremely committed to God that you would sacrifice your hopes, dreams, and ambitions and even risk your own life to be true to God. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, this is in Mark eight thirty-four through 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, And the gospels will save it. It's living for his glory. That's where we find the greatest satisfaction. Your faith in God is more valuable to you than anything else you hold dear to your life. You will put it all on the line because you trust in him. What does that mean to love your neighbor? So that's what it means to love God. What does it mean to love your neighbor? He says it, he helps us with that in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, you need to do something about that. So here's the point. If you get into the presence of poor people, broken people, hurting people, people that are very different from you, and you respond either with scorn or indifference, you don't have real faith. Why? Because poor people, broken people, hurting people, different people are what you were spiritually before God's grace rescued you. That's the point. If you know you are a sinner saved by grace alone, you will be both open and generous to the outcast and the unlovely. It's just natural overflow of your life. You become very others directed because you already have your treasure in him And in gratitude, you desperately want others to experience the satisfaction and freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. Now, we have a 5G process here at Desert Breeze that helps you to become fully devoted to Christ. And those of you that have gone through the game of life, you know what I'm talking about here. But this is what it looks like in our lives. We become a genuine Christian. We make a confession of faith in Christ. And then we we get plugged into a local church family. We commit to Christ into a local church family. And then we make that public through water baptism. we got a baptism. uh, There'll be a class right up here at the end of the service. If you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to get baptized here in a couple weeks. You're making that public declaration. So you're a genuine Christian. You become a growing Christian. Oh, my goodness. You have a passion to know Jesus, to, to increase your capacity to experience more and more intimacy with him. And so what do you do? You read your Bible, you pray, you you go to church, you get plugged in with other Christians. So you become a genuine, you become a growing Christian, you become a giving Christian. Out of the abundance of your heart, you begin to look around at Desert Breeze and say, hey, this is my church home. How can I get involved? How can I be a part? How can I contribute? And many of you have done that. That's why we're able to do what we do. We're able to reach many, many people's lives with the gospel message. And and so you begin to get involved in ministry in some form or fashion. And then you become a going Christian. You're so excited about Christ, you become a bringer and includer. You begin to invite your family and friends to Desert Breeze. And within your small group so that they can hear the the dangerously life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And have their hearts transformed as yours has been transformed. And you do that, not for you, but for his glory And in doing that, that's where you are satisfied. Let me end with this. God said to Abraham in Genesis 22 sacrifice your 33 year old son as a burnt offering. By the way, most of us think he's a little boy. He was actually 33 years old when he sacrificed him, which just gives us a little bit of a glimpse into something we'll talk about in a moment. But God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, sacrifice your 33-year-old son as the burnt offering. Burnt offering was, was the Old Testament way for a sinful people to be reconciled to a holy God. But when Abraham lifted the dagger, God said, Abraham, do not sacrifice your son. Why? This is what God said. For now, I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. God was after his love and Abraham responded in love. God provided a ram in place of Isaac. Listen, he wants your heart. He wants you. Give him your heart. Make him the love of your life. That's what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. Years later, God the Father walked up the very same mountain and actually sacrificed his 33-year-old son in our place for our sins. And so we as Christians look at God sacrificing his son, and we say, now we know you love us, for you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. You didn't withhold your only son from us. You loved us that much, and that's what supernaturally transforms hearts producing good works. Let's pray. This would be a good opportunity with your heads bowed and eyes closed just to, to make a, a, maybe renew your faith in Christ Jesus or maybe for the first time, give your heart to him. And if you're doing it for the first time, we'd love to be able to baptize you here in a couple weeks as you make that public. And so, God, we love you. We admit that we are sinners made right with you by grace through faith in Christ's work, not ours. It's not our work. It's, it's Christ's work. And so we trust in, in the work of Christ for us. Death, burial, and resurrection in our place for our sins. We believe that we can never be so good that we don't need your grace or so bad that we can't receive your grace. So by grace, we place our faith in your son to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us from all our sins against you, our holy God. And may we celebrate your outrageous love for us by by loving you, by loving you with our whole person, our mind, emotion, and will. And, and help us then to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys.